Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thanks for joining us. We've got a very special episode for you this time, featuring Peter Asher, an internationally acclaimed English singer, guitarist, manager, and prolific producer who's helped shape the modern music landscape for more than 60 years. Peter came to prominence in the 1960s as a member of the pop music duo Peter and Gordon, who most notably gained fame with their first and biggest hit, the 1964 unrecorded Lennon-McCartney song, A World Without Love. During the mid-60s, Peter's sister Jane was the girlfriend of none other than Sir Paul McCartney, and it's through this connection that Peter was often given unrecorded Lennon-McCartney songs to perform. The duo had numerous subsequent hits in America as part of the British Invasion era. Upon leaving the duo in 1968, Peter took charge of the A&R department at the Beatles' Apple Records label. While there, Peter enjoyed a highly successful career as a manager and record producer, helping to foster the recording careers of many highly successful artists including James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt, producing many of their greatest hits. Peter also played a key role in shaping the California rock sound, prominent during the 1970s and 80s, producing hit albums for countless notable artists as diverse as Cher, 10,000 Maniacs, and others. From 1995 to 2002, he served as Senior Vice President for Sony Music, after which he went on to serve as President of a highly successful artist management company in California. Upon leaving this company, Peter served in many roles within the industry, which afforded him the ability to continue shaping the music industry as we know it today. And the catalog of artists whose careers he helped shape is a literal list of music royalty and include David Sanborn, Bonnie Raitt, Diana Ross, Neil Diamond, Olivia Newton-John, Ringo Starr, Kenny Loggins, Steve Martin, and many, many others. Peter has received three Grammys as a producer and was appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2015 for services to the British music industry. And today, Peter joins us from his home in California for an intimate look back at his successes and to bring us up to speed on what he's working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. Thank you so much for doing this. I really it's a pleasure. And and uh, you know, it's almost like the subtitle should be uh, the many careers of Peter Asher, mm-hmm. because the more I look into what you've accomplished in your life, the more I uncover. You know, like you starting out as an actor as a child. Yes. yes and you acted true. like like with Alistair Sim, who's one of yes. my favorites, and Boris yes. Karloff. Yes. Like, have you have you talked much about that in the past? Well, the Boris Karloff one, curiously, I, I was in. They just did a documentary on Boris Karloff, which and they, which I was in, only because I think I'm probably, as far as they could tell, the only living actor who acted with Boris Karloff. Wow. Well, of course, um, you were such a small child. Because I was such a small child, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, all the people who made his most famous, famous movies with him are unfortunately all dead. So so I got to be in the Boris Karloff documentary. But um, yeah, I um, I talk about it if asked. Yeah, absolutely. And so he was, very, he was charming, by the way. He was very nice. Really? And so you remember that. So how old would you have been when you did that? 10 or 11, I suppose. Okay. I, I was eight when I did my first film. Um, and that one was even more memorable because my mother was played by Claudette Colbert, the great American actress. Wow. And 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 Alistair Sim, what's your memories of him? Because he's one of my favorites. He was nice. I only had one scene, one or two scenes, I think, with him. It was a film called Escapade. Good film, actually. <clears throat> they, they did some kind of a screening of it as part of some season or other <clears throat> out here in L.A. Um, but he, I remember him being nice, but I, I don't remember a lot of interaction with him. Yeah. Well, so you and both your sisters were actors? Yes, we all got into it at a very young age. Um, the only thing we ever did, to, we never did anything, all three of us together. And Claire didn't stick with it for very long. Um, Jane, of course, stuck with it continuously and still does. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only thing we ever did together was Jane and I did one episode of Robin Hood together. Oh, OK. Um, I did several episodes myself as Prince Arthur. But then they also had Jane and I come back later as a pair of peasant children whose father had been wrongfully imprisoned by the wicked sheriff. And um, we went to Robin for help. And that's the only, only acting we ever actually did as a team. Now, your, your mother was uh, 
of course, a music teacher and stuff. Yes. Did, she, did you teach out of the Academy? The Royal Academy of Music, yes. Yeah. And, and your father, what did he do? He was a doctor. He was a doctor? Um, he was a brilliant doctor and a writer as well. And he's was, was quite well known in the medical community. Um, and he was an amateur musician. He played the piano. And wow, so like, <laughs> I can't imagine the number of awards around your family's house, even at a young age. Uh, yeah, well, I don't think anybody particularly got awards, but it, it was certainly very busy and, and <laughs> full of music. Well, even with Peter and Gordon, I mean, you guys amassed quite a few hits. Yes, like we did. 40 hits. Yes, we did. Yes, Nine of them, I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable. So how old were you when, like, well, the Peter and Gordon thing, for people that don't know, uh, your sister, Jane, famously became Paul McCartney's, you know, main, like, major love interest up until mm -hmm. he met Linda, pretty much. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and he lived in your house. Yes, he did. Yeah. I mean, they, they were going out together for several years and that meant that Paul was around hanging around the house a lot. And eventually our parents offered him the guest room at the top floor of our house, which was next to my bedroom. So he lived with us for about two years. So you became quite close at that time, no doubt. Yeah, we were friends. We were both working, you know, but but we became friends suddenly. And 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 so, of course, famously, he wrote mm. Without Love for your Peter and Gordon. Now, well, actually, he didn't um, write, oh. of course. Well, not all of it. Um, the song pre-existed um, us. I'd heard the song, and it was from Paul, and he explained that it was an unfinished song he'd started some years ago, and but the John didn't think much of it, and the Beatles weren't going to do it. John thought the lyrics were silly, particularly "Please lock me away." Uh. He'd apparently say to Paul, "Okay, I will lock you away. The song's over." Um, so. <laughs> Uh, but when we got a record deal, I went back to Paul and said, um, we've, you know, we have a record deal. We're looking for cool songs. Any chance, uh, whatever happened with that world of that love song? Did you finish it? Did you do it? And he said, no, we didn't finish it. We didn't record it. So, um, I said, can we have a go at it? And he said, yes. Uh, but, and then, uh, he had to finish it by writing the bridge. The so I wait, and in a while I will see my true love smile. That bit of the song, of course, which he did. So, so you could say that perhaps a third of the song was written for us. The rest of the song pre-existed any knowledge Paul had of our existence. And so, how old were you uh, at the start of the Peter and Gordon era? Well, the Peter and Gordon era, when we met at school and started singing together, uh, would be when I was like seventeen or eighteen. The Peter and Gordon era meaning when we started making records and had hits would be uh, when I was 20. Okay. And, and that lasted for a few years. And, and like, <laughs> what blows my mind, like I said before, it's like the more I look into things, the more I find out. So, of course, I knew you were part of Apple, but I didn't realize now you were, you were with Peter and Gordon. And then what was the transition? You were, what label were you signed to? We were on EMI, same as the Beatles. Okay. And so when so when you were from Peter and Gordon, and that sort of, I guess, just fizzled, you guys found different paths. And of course, yeah. you started working for Apple, but I mean, I'm trying to get the bridge between Peter We didn't and break up as such. We never had a big bust up like the Everly's or anything, no onstage fights or anything dramatic. But we gradually, Gordon wanted to make some records on his own. I became uh, determined that I wanted to be a record producer, and I wanted to do that. And so I was taking steps in that direction. I'd already produced some records. And uh, when Paul told me about the Apple thing and asked if I wanted to produce for them initially, and then finally asked if I um, wanted to be head of A&R for the label, which of course I accepted. Right. And this would have been probably 68. I'm not very good at dates, but that would have been around then, yes. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show a picture in a while. We won't do it yet. But during that time when Paul and John famously went on the Johnny Carson show in North America and basically said that they'd started this label and they said that they were looking for talent yeah. for Apple. Yeah. Uh, a guy that I've been actually writing with for the past couple of years, Barry Greenfield, sa saved up his money over the course of a month mm. and flew to England and actually went to Apple and auditioned. And he actually had a, a meeting with, I guess, John and Yoko at the time. And, oh, yeah. and sang songs for them. And he said that he was sent 
into another room and he wasn't sure who that who he would have been sent into the room with. Now, I'm sure if it was you, he would have known that because he's a big fan of yours. So mm. who, who do you think would have would have been Derek Taylor? Who, who would who would he have been sent into a room to, to play his songs for? I don't know. It might have been Derek, I suppose. Yeah, you, logically it would have been me, but I don't know. Yeah, and then eventually they offered him a deal, and he didn't want to do it because he he only wanted to write songs. They actually wanted to like have him record and sing, and so he gave up on that and then came back to it later. But that's another story. But I just found it amazing that he had so much shots, but actually, you know, leave leave from Vancouver and fly to London as a young yes. guy and just show yeah. up on Apple. But you you people must have been inundated with people like that. We were, yes. It was crazy. I had four or five people working for me, listening to all the tapes we were sent, because we did make that promise that unlike regular record companies, you don't take unsolicited material at all, that we would um, accept and somebody would listen to whatever we were sent. And we did, and it was all awful, unfortunately. I bet. <laughs> it, was, it would have been really absolute bad. chaos. Yeah. And people showing up at the door? Yes. A lot of people just turning up, yeah. A any Anything of note that you remember that was particularly ridiculous no it would do it no it, it was just nothing interesting really but i mean some of it would be a little bit depressing you know somebody 100 pages of lyrics that don't even scan that this person is convinced that john lennon is going to write music for and things like that you know oh, yeah, just things where you go oh no that they don't get it you know how do i tell this person that they're barking up the wrong tree you know yeah, of course. um so, but, you so, know, we, we expected to find some good stuff. And so you famously uh, signed uh, 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 James Taylor and became his producer. Yes. For his probably quite a number of his albums. As a matter of fact, even recently you did the, the Troubadour thing with him and Carol King. Yes. And I did. I did most of I mean, all the albums back in that era. Yeah. Wow. And so what how did you realize you had an affinity or like what drew you to be becoming a producer when you were working with Peter and Gordon? Uh, I just loved the idea of it. I'd never been in a studio before, you know, and, and of course in that era, you had to have a studio before you could make records. You know, there was no, now you can make records in your bedroom or in your, on your phone, you know, but um, uh, so uh, the, 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 the real studio was thrilling to me technologically, musically, and, 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 and I just got excited about it. And once I realized what a producer did, that you can hire musicians much better than yourself and tell them what to do, I thought that was genius. And so um, uh, I set my heart on becoming a producer. Yeah, it seems to me that a good producer is a person who has a fantastic Rolodex. Uh, that's part of it, I suppose. I would, I would actually say that's quite a minor part of it, I would have thought. Well, I guess in a situation like Steely Dan, that would be important because they, they all used all side musicians. I think I think when you're a producer and you're actually producing a, a band. Yeah, but you know, you know, I mean, you can get hold of those people. If you, you know, they're all, it's not like they're trying to avoid work. They're, you yeah. know, if you decide, I mean, same with booking a studio. People think there's some magic to it, you know. I remember working with some band and, and um, uh and they, you know, saying they wanted a studio in London. They were going to be in London, so we want to go in the studio. I said, and there was a big band. I forgot who it was. And um, and I said, oh, you know, we can book somewhere. If you know, and I said, do you want to go to Abbey Road? And they went, oh, can you get into Abbey Road? You know, it's like, yes, you call them, book it. <laughs> yeah. It's a commercial operation, and the same with session musicians. To be honest, you know, I mean, those they're great guys. That that is why. They, they have the role that they do. But if you want one of those people to play on your record, there's usually a num you know, and somebody you call and book them. Speaking of that, do, do you know anything about the mm -hmm. Alan Parsons, Eric Wolfson? Uh, no. Okay. Sorry, no. I, I'd heard that Eric Wolfson <clears throat> was basically, a, a, uh, uh, basically like an agent for uh, studio session players. Were such people, yes. I, I don't know if that's now. I don't know him, no. Okay. And he ended up becoming Alan Parsons' songwriting partner, of course. Oh. And, and actually the singer on a lot of the songs eventually. So it was quite mm. an interesting thing. But, okay, so now, now, as I'm reading, mm. I find out that you were, the, you founded the Indica Gallery. Yes. Which is where John met Yoko Ono. Yes. Like, that's unbelievable. Like, it seems like your life intertwines with 
like not just the Beatles, but tons and tons and tons of people. And it's like the many careers of Peter Asher. Yeah, how, how did this happen? Uh, two friends of mine, Barry Miles, the writer, who as well, you may know, he wrote the McCartney biography and a bunch of other good books, mostly about the 60s. Um, and John Dunbar, uh, we decided, the three of us, we wanted to start a bookshop and an art gallery. Uh, we called it Indica. And uh, there were separate places, separate premises, separate ventures. And, and we did, we opened them both. And, and, and yes, John was looking for artists um, to, to bring over and had heard about Yoko. So he got in touch with Yoko and she was one of our earlier exhibitions. And, that, and of course, we invited our friends, which included uh, John Lennon. And so this was at, right around the same time as Apple starting? Uh, I guess, yeah. Okay. So, because you said something about bringing artists over. Uh, we're bringing, thought, she, we, 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 Yoko was not a British resident artist. You know, we're bringing artists in. Uh, the assumption being some of them would be from America, yes. Oh, I see. Okay. I thought you'd be bringing them into the Apple domain or something. That's what I thought you'd meant. No, no, nothing. No, no. I, I, no. Indica and Apple had no connection, other than the fact that Paul and John were good customers of the bookshop and 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 uh, John came to the art gallery opening for Yoko well it, well that the, even the apple logo that was that was a was it was that a Majid piece Magritte. of Magritte. Ma what it was it wasn't wasn't the original apple logo from a famous artist that Ma Magritte Magritte yeah. pardon me yeah, yeah and I, I thought it was Madrid <laughs> sorry no sorry and and that's where they got the idea of a court. And of course, how, calling it Apple Corps was just a brilliant idea, I thought. But mm. and then the half on the other side, I thought it was a great presentation. Personally. Yes, no, it was all good. And so, so now you go from producing James Taylor. Now, what what made you migrate to North America and eventually into management? Um, we believed that James's career would be America-based, and that was where he was from, and it's where he went intended to return to. So when Apple got weird and we decided to leave Apple, um, uh, James wanted to go back to America anyway. So basically, I decided to go with him and, and bet my career on his and become his manager. So that was all in one move. It wasn't sort of eventually became his manager. It was, okay, let's go to America. I'll be your manager. Um you know, we'll, we'll find a new record deal. We'll get this career off the ground, which we did. And then famously, you became manager for Linda Ronstadt. Is that yes. like, so it started with James Taylor, I take it? Yes. And then and then from there, it blossomed into... Yes, the ma management was different from production in, in, in the sense that being a record producer was an ambition in and of itself. I wanted to be a record producer. I never sat down and said, I want to be a manager. It was simply that... Um, James and I didn't know who else we trusted um, to do it. So it made sense to us that I would give it a try um, and sort of learn it as I went along. I figured if Brian Epstein can do that, anybody can. You know, <laughs> um, I, I admired Brian very much. And, you know, he, he ran a record shop. You know, he, he, he became the Beatles manager. And, and, of course, the secret of great management is pathetically simple. The secret of being a great manager is having a great client. So yes. it's not surprising that, you know, Brian Epstein is considered a great manager. He was a great manager. But, but, but being a good manager is easy, easier if you have an incredibly good band like the Beatles. And so I was entirely confident with James that if I could just get people to listen and pay attention and make the right record, you know, so I made the next album when we were in America, of course, for, for Warner Brothers, and that became Sweet Baby James. Yeah, the more I've learned about production and, and engineering and stuff over the years, it's like I've always admired the acoustic sound that James Taylor achieves. And I, the more I learn, the more I realize it's basically coming from his fingers. Exactly. It's not like some special mic or some special guitar. No, people, like people spend waste hours thinking you've only had that bit of equipment or that guitar, that this and that, that I'd sound wonderful. No, it's it's uh, the player is infinitely the most important part of that whole equation. I remember um, I was doing a session with Eric Clapton. Um, it was a, a benefit record of, uh, that I was doing with Cher and Chrissy Hind and Nana Cherry. But um, and I wanted Eric to play the solo and I'd run into him at, at lunch and asked him if he'd come play the solo on it, which he did. And and I said, 
you know, what do you want me to have in the studio? And, you know, what should I order? And he said, you know, an amp. I went, oh, okay. And so I ordered like, I guess, a Vox AC30 and a Fender Twin or something basic, you know, figuring he'd choose. And I swear he walked in, plugged into the nearest amp, you know, and sounded like Eric Clapton. Mm. And it was brilliant, you know. And and I, I, it seemed like he didn't even look at what amp he was plugging into. He certainly didn't spend hours going, oh, this is the wrong kind of speaker or I have to tweak these knobs ever so slightly or whatever it was, you know, which just goes to show if you really know what you're doing, things are not that complicated. I remember uh, uh, hearing a, a, a guy that I know ran into Eddie Van Halen back probably 20 some odd years ago. Mm. And uh, he said, well, how do you get your sound? He said, well, give me your guitar and app and I'll show you. Right, exactly. Once again, it's from your fingers. You yeah, know. yeah. Uh, you know, I find it remarkable. I, I did a, I did a, a show one time with Don Felder, where yeah. they basically supplied the backline. They gave him a Strat. They gave him a an Ibanez Tube Screamer or something, and and a Fender Deluxe amp. And we did Hotel California. And as soon as he started playing the guitar, I went, "Oh my God, it sounds like the album." Yeah, and it's all out of his fingers. It's yeah. not. It wasn't his guitar. It wasn't his amp. It wasn't his pedal. You know. My point exactly. Yeah. It, exactly. It's incredible. It makes such a huge difference. So, so getting back to management. So you t you took over. Or you well, you and James decided that you were the most trustworthy pe person to have, which makes sense. You know. Yeah. You already established an agent, or pardon me, a, a relationship with him, and uh, you're only going to want what's best for him, and he's only going to want what's best for you, and yeah, you know. It sort of makes sense. So how did how did it end up where you ended up with Linda Ronstadt, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I was already managing James and things were going well. And somebody told me to go and hear this girl singing at the Bitter End Cafe. I was in New York and and I went to go and hear her. And, you know, she was the best thing I'd ever heard in my life. And plus being incredibly beautiful. And it turned out when I met her, also astonishingly well-read and intelligent and thoughtful and charming and everything. So, um, yes, I, once she, she asked me if I would be interested in managing her and I jumped at the chance. Now was the, now were the Eagles her backup band in that time? Uh, I think it was just, I think maybe, maybe Randy Meisner was in still in the band, but I think the main Eagles time was the, the band that John Boylan, who had managed her originally. Okay. Um, or at least produced a record and helped put, it was John Boylan certainly who helped put that band together. And, and Linda worked with them for a while. I think by the time I saw her, I'm not sure how many Eagles was, were in the band at that point. And one, one of my favorite artists of all time, Carol King, how, how was your involvement with her? Did that develop through James? Uh, no, no, no. James didn't know Carol. Um, oh, uh, it uh, developed. Well, a lot of this developed through a guitar player called Danny Korchmar. Oh, of course. Um, Cooch, uh, that, that's, I met James through Danny. Um, well, Danny they had Co a band together when they were young, I remember. Yes, Danny Korchmar had been in a band that backed Peter and Gordon on a couple of tours. He and I had become very good friends. And um, he, after that, he was in a band called The Flying Machine with his childhood friend, James Taylor. They'd been playing together for ages. And when the flying machine broke up, he was the one person who gave James my phone number, not knowing I'd got this new job at Apple, just saying, here's a friend of mine in London, give him a call. And, and by the time I brought James to LA, um, Cooch was, uh, you know, obviously still there and still a friend of James and mine. And I'd fallen in love with Carol King's playing um, from her demos. You know, this was when she was just a songwriter. She was the, you know, Goffin and King. And, but I got to hear some of the demos of those great songs on which she played piano. And I loved her piano playing. So I got Cooch uh, to introduce me to Carol because he knew Carol. They'd been in a band together called The City. And so um, he introduced me to Carol. And after I'd done a bit of fan groveling about how, what a great songwriter she was, I asked her if she'd consider playing piano on an album for an unknown singer songwriter. And uh, I invited her over to my house to meet James. James was staying with me at the time. And she that's when they first met. They came, he, she came over to my house because we were asking her to play on the album and she agreed to, to do so. Okay, so that, oh, so interesting. So Carol King, 
you you introduced Carol King to James Taylor essentially. Yes, I did. And and so is that when he recorded "You've Got a Friend"? Is like she probably submitted that at the time? Is that the idea? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> do you want to know the "You've Got a Friend" story? Sorry, sure, I'd love to. No, there's no submitted it. Um, that that first meeting arranged by myself through Cooch was for Carol and James to meet and for him to play, her to play on the album we were about to make, which was Sweet Baby James. Okay. Right? After that album came out, up till that point, James was touring just on his own, no band. But um, when it became very successful and we had another week to play at the Troubadour, that's when I tried to put that week together with the band who played on Sweet Baby James. So I asked Carol if she would do that week with us at the Troubadour. And she said, yes. Opening night of that week, at that point, Carol was actually getting ready to make her own first album. Um, and, but she uh, hadn't done any gigs as a, as a solo artist ever. She was just a, a songwriter. But, and she was, in this instance, the little girl playing piano in James's band at the Troubadour. James said, why don't you do a few songs on your own as an opening act? Um, because people will be amazed if you just play up on the roof and really still let me tomorrow and locomotion that I'm into something good and tell people you wrote them, they'll be amazed, which they were. Uh, on the opening night at Soundcheck, we did our Soundcheck with the band, Cooch, Russ Conkle, Lee Scar, and Carol. And then we left the stage to give Carol an opportunity to sound check for this mini opening set she was going to do on her own. James and I stuck around to give her moral support. She was very nervous. Um, and uh, she played for the purposes of checking that she could hear herself on the piano. She decided to run through a song she had finished writing the night before. And that's when we heard You've Got a Friend for the very first time. Uh, James and I were sitting in the balcony of the Troubadour. She played it at sound check. James, I liked it so much, he asked her if he could learn it. She said yes. And um, so she taught him the song and, and it fell to me a few days later to go to Carol and say, look, I know you're going to do this on your own album. I know you're about to make your own album, the one that, of course, ended up being called Tapestry. Uh, but would it be crazy to ask you if, if James and I could record this song too for the album we're about to make? So, and she, with extraordinary generosity and breaking the usual rules of show business said, yeah, that would be fine. And so that's how it ended up that within a couple of weeks, we recorded You've Got a Friend at the studio we were in at Crystal Sound on Vine Street for our next album, which of course was Mudslide Slim. And uh, Carol recorded it close by at A&M Studios with her producer, Lou Adler. And uh, the miracle is, of course, that it ended up working out for everybody because James had the huge hit single and, and Carol's version became a key track on Tapestry, the biggest selling singer-songwriter album of all time, I think. So that worked for everybody. But that's how, that's how that happened. Wow, that's magical. What a great story. So now, did, did Cooch played on Tapestry, right? Yes. And, and, and Russ Kunkel, et cetera. Now, were, were yes. they, they the people that were also on James's version? Yes. Interesting. So they approached the song with two different sort of attitudes for each artist, which is interesting. Yes. Um, yeah, Carol didn't play on James's version because there is no piano on the version we did. Right. Just a couple of acoustic guitars and um, percussion and, and Russ on congas and some drums. Um, yeah, I, I found Russ Kunkel. I, he was a, playing with a guy called John Stewart, and I went to John Stewart's rehearsal and... Uh, loved the way Russ played and he hadn't done sessions before. I asked him if he would come play on this album and he, he, he played on the Sweet Baby James. So I had Carol on piano and uh, Cooch and Russ. I find it interesting, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, was, was Tapestry not the first album that actually mentioned the, the, the session players on the back cover? No. Was because I thought that it was one of the first albums I'd ever seen personally. But. It might have that could well be, but I know I put them on Sweet Baby James, so that so that's how I know the it wasn't Tapestry that was first. Oh, okay, okay, fair and, enough. Because um, Sweet Baby James was a year earlier. Oh, okay, fair enough. 
Okay, great. I, I don't know if I was first or not. Though Cooch gives me credit for that. He always says that I was the first person who put the names of the players on albums. Um, I don't know that to be true, but I, I, but clearly, um, it was before Tapestry. Yeah. Well, he's gone on to have a great not only career with guitar, but also mm-hmm. producing. I mean, you know, with you know uh, Don Henley's album. I do. Yes, you know, just mm-hmm. brilliant stuff. Yes, you know, real smart. And so, anyway, so now, now we're going down the many careers of of Peter Asher. Um, so now from management, you end up getting a job as vice president of Sony Music. Yeah. Now, okay, so you got offered that. So now you sort of stop your management company and dive into being the senior vice president of Sony Music. So for us laymen, the, what did you find was the major difference between being a manager and being now you're the record company? You're oh, very, very different. Very different. You're part of a big corporation with a structure, you know, with a chain of command kind of thing. Um, but it was interesting. And of course, half the things we as managers always believed record companies were up to turned out to be true. But it, it was always on the other side of the desk. But it was interesting. And I, you know, I learned a lot. Um, well, and you were there for like eight years, apparently. Yeah. And not to mention all the, uh, you know, like mm. uh, the awards. I'm not even going to list the awards. The awards we're going to, we're actually going to list your awards in the preview of this because okay. there's just so many things to go. I can't believe what you've accomplished. Like what, what a life, what an absolute life. Now moving on. Okay. So now um, you, you've, you're, oh yeah. And of course we already mentioned the fact that you went back to the Troubadour with James and Carol and did that album that was back a few years, a few years back. I actually had that album and it's fantastic. Mm. But even recently with Hans Zimmer, he produced music for Pirates of the Caribbean, Sherlock Holmes, Madagascar, Man of Steel, and Rush. Uh, Man of Steel, pardon me. And then mm. on Madagascar, you wrote a song with Dave Stewart that you sang, Love Always Comes as a Surprise, correct? Correct. Yeah. And so and so that brought you back. Now, was that around the time that you were sort of reforming Peter and Gordon to play live again after so many years? Or was that? Gosh, no, I don't know. That was... The Peter and Gordon thing was quite a bit earlier than that, I think. I'm afraid I'm not good at dates, but okay. no, the Peter and Gordon thing would have come before working with Hans. Well, see, it's easy for guys like me to remember dates because my 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 career has not been like your career has been so like immense. Like it seems well, like you're very, you're very kind. you seem to have mm. a major thing going mm. on. So I can imagine one year would blend into the next. I've just no, I've never been good at remembering what happened when, but yes, thanks. <laughs> Because you, you've done so much. I think people can sort of, okay, I like I have landmarks in my career, things that have happened here, so I remember that. Then this, then this. It seems like with you, this it's an, I don't know, it's well, an incredible uh, I, I, a potpourri, you know, of stuff. And then, of course, you've worked with Steve Martin. Elton John, what, what's your, your work with Steve, uh, Steve Martin? Now, did you, what, was, was, the, was that with the Steve Canyon Rangers? I, I did an album with the Steve Gannon Rangers and Steve, yes. And then I did the Steve Martin, Edie Brickell albums. Okay. Um, which we did uh, two of and which we turned into a Broadway musical that ran for a while. And I did and, the soundtrack album of the musical. And it, and speaking of comedians, did you not work with Robin Williams? I did. And oh, like, oh, but, but God, that's, that's heartbreaking for everybody. I'm sure. Yeah. So for you. Uh-huh. And yeah. like, what an immense talent. Oh, extraordinary. Yeah, brilliant. Extraordinary. And, that, and so you produced his live album, is that correct? Is that yes. what that was? Yes. And so how how long are you involved, like, pardon me for being a layman in these situations, as a producer for a live album, is it is it like actual production, studio production, post-production, this sort of thing, and leading up, like almost executive producer type things? Is that? Is that I, I that don't works? know what you call it, but, but it consists, I mean, Robin was a, a great friend of mine, and but in this case, I, we spent three, four weeks on the road, specifically recording uh, for, the, for the album. So I just went to the shows every night and made notes of which bits worked particularly well. And, and then, you know, put together all the best bits. For example, Robin used to do the first five minutes every night were about the city he was in. He would make jokes specific to the city. So at the moment we arrived in the plane, um, he would be asking, you know, the, 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 the baggage guy, the limo driver, the people at the hotel desk, 
what's going on in your town? You know, what's what's the mayor been up to? What's the sports team situation with this, that, and the other? And by the time he went on, he'd have a whole routine in his mind about the city. So I recorded all those. We And they actually put it out as a double album. One CD was just each city defined. And then the rest of it was the stuff he generally similar stuff he would do each night and i would just make notes as to which were the best funniest most cleverest versions and that was what it consisted of he was that off the cuff wasn't he sorry he was that off the cuff like yes he, he could yeah mostly it. i mean but it, yes the show had a certain structure he tended to follow but but he it, it, it always took new paths every night certainly i remember um milton burl famously saying years ago saying you know, he didn't have much use for new comedians, but he said, Robin Williams, he said that kid would have been big in any era. Mm -hmm. Like what an immense talent and, and multi-talented and, yes. and a fantastic actor as well for yes. serious roles. And mm -hmm. well, he started out in Shakespeare. I, I think that's pretty well documented that mm -hmm. he started a, his career as a Shakespearean sort of actor and morphed into Anyway, I, I didn't want to go too long about Rob, but it still depresses me, actually. I love yeah. that guy. You know, so yeah. many people did. Um, now, there's something that I would like to do, if you don't mind. I've got some random pictures that I've okay. chosen, and I'd like you to comment on them. Do you mind doing something like that? No, just don't ask me the date. But... <laughs> okay, okay, I promise. Okay, so hopefully you can see this um, right here. Can you see that? Yes. Okay, so that's a picture of the Apple offices. Now, yeah, you were talking about it being, you know, paraphrasing, it, it was mayhem. Um, so were you part of this office or was your A&R office in a different place? I'm trying to think if that's me. I think it is. Um, standing up on the right of the picture, I think that's me. Um, yeah, I th actually, it does look like you, actually. Uh, that's the, it's Derek Taylor's office. Okay, that's that's him in the fan back chair over there. Yes. Okay. And so, yeah. So uh, that was on the. I was a couple of floors above that. My office. Okay. So how many floors was? It? I've actually been to the Apple Building. I went there to sort of see where the rooftop session was. Were you at that no. rooftop session as well? No, I was not. I was in L.A. at the time. Okay. And uh, so I saw the building. So they occupied that entire building. Yes. Okay. Now, this is back going back to my story about mm. Barry Greenfield and uh, hopping over to uh, to London. Uh, this is one of the things that they released for Apple Records. Well, that was the ad we took. Yeah. Asking yeah. people to send in their music. Yeah. And so <laughs> this man now owns a Bentley. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was the theory that it was encouraging people to send in their music. But as I say, unfortunately, most of it was not good. Yeah, exactly. Well, now now we know why there's people that. Uh, yeah, but that's why we, that's why we got sacks and sacks of, of tapes. Yeah, and this is interesting because this has the Ivies before they became Badfinger. Yes. And so these were all like Jackie Lomax and James. So this was back in the very beginning. Now, how much? Now I think. Now, did George Harrison take on the Ivies? Uh, no, not particularly. I mean. Uh, they were brought in by Mal Evans. Oh, okay. He's the one who spotted them. And uh, I remember going back with Mal to, I think, the Marquee, somewhere club in London they were playing. And we thought they were very good. Yeah, and then, if, as you said, their first record wasn't particularly successful. And we decided for some reason to start all over again and reboot it, as they would say now, um, and call them uh, Badfinger. Yeah, and that which originally, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that came from Badfinger Boogie, which was the right. title of Little Help from My Friends by the Beatles. That's right. That's right. Um, now, uh, okay, there's another thing here. Uh, uh, what was I going to say? Now, with... You see, that particular, that's a, a weird little EP that must have been put out as a promotional. You know, it's a that's a two-sided EP, if you see. It's with four songs on it. Right. And produced for Walls Ice Cream by Apple. Walls, you see down at the bottom, Walls Ice Cream is the big ice cream company in England. Is that so, what that is? Okay. Yeah, yeah, now, that's, uh, that's their logo. So it must have, we must have been doing some co-promotion with ice cream. Okay. And, and so and Mary Hopkins, she was basically produced by Paul, correct? Yes. And now Jackie Lomax, he was, was he from? He, up that was George. Yes, that was George's deal. Okay. 
Okay, fair enough. Okay, now, like I said, these pictures are really random. So we're going to go back and forth all the time. So okay. here's a picture. And now you can you can tell everybody who that is. Well, that's me and Gordon when we got back together. It was Paul Schaefer was the person who persuaded us to get back together for a benefit that he was organizing. Is that right? Yeah, Paul's yeah. been on this show. I love Paul. I've worked yeah, with him a couple Paul's of times. Great. He's a wonderful guy. Okay. Um, yeah, and that's Gordon and me. Yeah. And and uh, uh, and here's a great picture with you and James. Yeah, that was the same session as as shot the album cover for Sweet Baby James. If you think back, if you happen to have any recollection of the Sweet Baby James album cover, that's mm -hmm. the same shirt, same same lighting, same everything. Yeah, um, yeah the, I can't remember where it was. I used to think it was on James's land on the vineyard, but it wasn't. It was somewhere they took us and where they had these broken down trucks. And Henry Diltz was the photographer. Now, here's something that is worth bringing up because now we got you with John and George and George Martin. Now, yes. here's the thing is that your mother taught George Martin, correct? She taught him the oboe, yes. He, he was at the Guildhall School of Music, but he was looking for an independent oboe teacher who did private lessons to get his oboe playing up, up to scratch, which was only his second instrument. He was mainly studying piano and arranging and stuff. But uh, so he, he came into private lessons from my mom for a while, pre-Beatles, you know. Right. This might have been back when he was still doing the comedy work and stuff like that. Is that correct? Or was that even before that? I don't know what he was doing at the time, actually. But um, he was, as far as I knew at the time, he was just a music student. So I, I don't know. Okay, he, fair I, enough. I assume he got the job at EMI, and in which case he probably would have been working on comedy stuff. Yes. Okay, now moving on. This is kind of a pixelated picture, just you and Paul. Who's that? Yeah, I'm not sure where we are then. I don't know. Okay, we'll just move on. That wasn't all that important. This is an interesting one because it's you and Paul, Linda. Yeah, and Linda, Linda Ronstadt and I went to see a Paul show somewhere. And this is backstage, obviously, and it's like a sports dressing room. And it's uh, me and Paul and Linda and Linda. Yeah. Would that would have been like the Winds Over America tour, possibly in the 70s? Don't know. Mm. Sorry. Yeah, you have to figure it I'm out. Sorry, I mentioned the date again, didn't I? Yeah, you'd have to. <laughs> Figure it out from fashion, I suppose you could tell. Yeah, I suppose it, it looks know. it looks more like a Wings Over America time. We, yeah. we all have very big collars on our shirts. I don't know. That's um, oh, um, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a street in London. Is it maybe Denmark Street? No, I don't know. That was early on. That was when we just signed. I think. Yeah. So, you, and uh, this looks like it was from a TV show, of course. Yeah, it was. And that's, now, all, that's all I can tell you. I don't know. Yeah. It was a TV show. And and this is you and your sister, Jane? Yeah. That was a um, photo shoot they did, I think, for the Sunday for Tea single, maybe. You can certainly see there is before I had my teeth fixed. That definitely, it's got the Austin Powers look going on there. Um, <laughs> I didn't have them fixed. I came to America. But um, uh, yeah, that was an early photo shoot for Peter and Gordon. Now, moving on here, that's with Jeremy Clyde, correct? Yeah, because once, you know, Gordon died and then Chad Stewart retired and then he died also, sadly. So, the, you know, P Peter and Gordon and Chad and Jeremy were always getting mistaken for each other anyway. So it was a weird coincidence. You know, there were only two duos in the British invasion and the very fact that there were so many similarities. We were not from Liverpool. We were from London. Uh, the, there was the tall, handsome one who sang the low part and the short, nerdy one wore glasses and sang the high part. That was strangely coincidental. <laughs> and and um, so uh, when, you know, Jeremy and I had always been friends, so we decided to do some shows together and we still do from time to time. Was there a rivalry back then? Not really. We were kind of different. I mean, I suppose there was, but... Um, you know, they did things like Batman and Dick Van Dyke and all that, you know, but we were more successful on the record front. We had bigger hit records than they did, but but they had a more interesting, varied career as actors than we did. A couple of friends of mine in Canada here, Dana Honey and uh, Danny Cassavant, they've taken upon themselves during COVID to redo some of their favorite songs. So they've done remakes of I Go to Pieces and and Summer, Summer Song and all that stuff. And they've done a really nice job, actually. Cool. I got, the, I got the feeling that Dana Honey might have sent you a copy of that. And I think you were kind enough to write him back saying that you really enjoyed what they did. So Probably, yeah. <laughs> and this this is you and your uh, environment. 
Yeah, that's at Conway Studios. And where is that? In LA, uh, on Melrose. Beautiful. Oh, man. <laughs> I'd like to say I would like to own something like that, but I certainly wouldn't want the overhead. Exactly. <laughs> and this is some of the things that you're up to recently. So I'd like to talk to people about this. Well, but the book derived from the radio show. You know, the the when I began the show on, on Sirius XM, From Me to You, I took the alphabet as a as a clue, uh, not in any historical or organized sense, but just the way Sesame Street do, you know, you allowing the letter to stand for people or places or songs or anything. And uh, so this publisher came to me and, you know, they kept, I thought they would be asking to write, me to write an autobiography, which I've declined to do thus far. But they said, no, 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 we don't need that. We just would like to turn your, you know, idea of the Beatles from A to Z into a book. And I said, oh, well, that's okay. And so we did that. I thought it would be easy because I thought you'd just take the radio show and transcribe it and it would look like a book, which of course doesn't happen. You end up having to rewrite the whole thing from scratch, but, but I enjoyed doing it. That's good. Uh, we're, gonna, we're flipping back and forth here. So here's another picture of Peter Gordon. Yeah, very young. And this, this is a great shot. Yeah. That's, you, and James, you and James and Linda on Rolling Stone. Yeah, they, Rolling Stone, you know, graciously call, called me up and said, we're going to do a big story on you. You know, Ben Fong Torres is going to destroy you. We'd like you to go to New York next week and do a photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz. I went, great, fantastic. And they said, well, there's one more thing. We might consider putting it on the cover, but only if you bring James and Linda with you to the photo shoot. So... I did have to politely bully them ever so slightly because did I want to be on the cover of Rolling Stone? Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, here's another wonderful picture I was able to find. Yeah, that was an irresistible group of women. Um, um, yeah, that, that was the Rock and Roll Hall, uh, Hall of Fame inducting Linda. And these ladies had all sung Linda songs as part of that induction. And they are all friends of mine, I'm happy to say. So I insisted and I confess on getting a, uh, a, a photo up before they dispersed. Mm, that's, that's what a, what a crop of talent there. Holy yeah. Sisters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I've got a song. I've got to get to Bonnie Raitt, by the way. <laughs> I've got a song that's perfect for her. I don't know if she'd listen to it, but boy. Um, next one. That's Peter Brown, who was the Beatles' right-hand man at Apple. Yeah. I, I don't remember the occasion. We're having dinner somewhere, it looks like, but I don't know. Yeah, all these famous lyrics that pop up. Peter Brown called to say, you can make it okay. You can get married in Gibraltar, near Spain. Christ, you know it ain't easy. Yes. And also, the other one was you, you uh, mentioned Flying Machine, the, the, the band that James had with Cooch. Yes. You know, and that's, everybody thought the, 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 the folklore of... Uh, of the song <clears throat> sweet dreams and flying machines and pieces on the ground oh it's about a, it's about a, a plane crash you know not realizing it's basically talking about the demise of his band correct yeah um, um that's when we finished the elton tribute album when i was giving elton the finished uh we just finished mastering it and giving him a cd of the mastered version backstage in uh, las vegas where he was playing at the time and here's another one. You guys are the boys in red in this shot. Yeah, that's what, what David David Furnish sent it to me and said, the boys in red. It, it was a pure coincidence that we are matching, wearing kind of matching outfits. Was this Vegas as well? No, that's in LA, I think. Okay. Uh, no, no, maybe New York. It's in some fancy hotel. can't yeah. remember which one. Oh, great. Okay. I think that's... Oh, no, we got one more. Just one more. You and the Rolling Stones. Yeah, us and the Rolling Stones backstage. Um, we were on tour with them. Interestingly, it was one of those English, you know, multi-act tours, same as America did, like a Dick Clark tour, but it was in England. And uh, neither we nor the Rolling Stones were the headliners of this particular tour. Um, the headliners, you would might have a hard time believing, were Freddie and the Dreamers because they had a huge hit at the time. So they were officially the headliners in the Stones and we were both just oh, subsidiary acts. Freddie and the Dreamers, that was I'm Telling You Now? Yes. Right, okay. 
Yeah, that's and uh, and and he did the Freddy the dance exactly. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, that that puts it into that. But um, I just wanted to talk a bit more about your. <clears throat> now you're you're currently on Sirius XM. Yes. And your show, um, I think, I think your show is on Saturdays at 5 p.m., Sundays at 8 a.m., Tuesdays at 1 p.m., and Thursdays at 9 p.m. And and basically, it's called "From Me to You," discussing all of your memories with the Beatles, etc. Yes. And, and uh, playing music, yeah. And you're playing the songs and talking about your your connection and your memories directly with the Beatles and things that have happened that you re- recollect that reflect on the songs you're playing. I take it. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's great. And 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 you're and so you're currently also touring with uh, with Jeremy Clyde as well, all over the place. Uh, you have- uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, no, I'm. I'm doing some shows on my own at the moment. Um, oh. But there are some Jeremy ones planned in the future. I know that. Yes. Okay. And so, where's where's your next tours? Uh, I leave on Monday to play uh, Boston on Tuesday, and a couple more gigs. I'm afraid I don't have the details in front of me. I should know, but all I know is when I have to leave. <laughs> yeah, I know what it's like. I, I'm like that too. My wife constantly asks, "Well, where are you going?" I'm, I don't know. PeterAsherMusic.com is the website that has the right information. If anybody's curious as to where we're playing, PeterAsherMusic.com will tell all. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute joy. You're such a hero of mine. You're very kind. You're most generous. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And you have a great, you have a great day. And uh, hopefully, we'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Bye bye now. Bye. Thanks for joining us. Check out our many other episodes and vignettes for more great content. And please like, share, and subscribe, and become a member at socialenergypresents.com to access all our content and earn valuable energy points just for watching.